Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another one of our Practice Manager Update webinars. I'm Louise Greenwood, um, Director of Education for Wessex LNCs. We're really pleased to have our Acting CEO, Dr. Gareth Bryant, with us today. And he's also got a specialism in occupational health, which for this particular topic is particularly useful. So thank you, Gareth. It's nice to see you. And um, Dr. Will Howard will also be joining us shortly, um, who's one of our medical directors. We've got our usual team of Michelle Lombardi and Lisa Harding with us, um, Directors of Primary Care. Um, so it's great to see you all. And um, we're going to head for the main topic, I think, first, Lisa, aren't we? So vaccination as a condition of deployment. And I'm just going to um, share my screen. So I'm going to start talking about and, and seek to try and summarise some of the key bullets within the guidance documents that have been published around the vaccination as a condition of, of deployment. Um, there are a number of guidance documents and inevitably we can't include everything in the slides. So we would definitely recommend that you read the documents in full. They are actually relatively helpful, although there are some still obviously scenarios that they don't cover. So moving on to the first slide, please. So just starting off by confirming the legislation. So parliamentary approval was received 6th of January. So it has gone through. It is in law now. Um, the regulations themselves come into force on the 1st of April of this year um, and we're currently going through a, a, a grace period as they refer to it um, but essentially what it is saying is that all employed staff must be fully vaccinated with an authorised COVID vaccine. Next slide please. So who does this apply to? Who, who's affected? Um, so it's those providers of CQC regulated activity. So obviously it affects uh, people like trusts, but it also includes GP practices. Um, it applies to workers who have face-to-face -face contact with patients. That will include clinical and non-clinical staff. Um, and it includes those not directly involved in patient care. And if you've seen the flowchart that is at the end of one of the guidance documents, it includes those individuals that you employ who may have incidental contact um, with patients. It also recommends that you, you need to consider your commercial or your third party contractors, so other people coming into the building on a contract basis for you, uh, for instance, such as locums or um, people who may do maintenance around the building, you need to include or consider them in your risk assessments and your mitigations as well. Next slide, please. So the exemptions still apply, of course. So um, as per the Green Book, those still remain. Those are the clinical, clinically exempt, uh, those under 18 and those participating in clinical trials. Um, there will also be some temporary exemptions, for instance, people who are pregnant. And there is more detail on that in the guidance documents. So just to just confirm the deadlines. So um, individuals need to have had their first dose by the 3rd of February at the latest to meet the required timescales. And obviously the second dose now is currently set at eight weeks later. The requirements, the regulations don't include the booster, so they don't have to have had the booster vaccination. Um, they must have documented evidence of vaccination or be exempt. Um, and you need, as the, um, the organisation is just responsible to ongoing monitor that on an ongoing basis. It's not a one-off exercise. And you do need, you have to collect that information. Next slide, please. 
So what are the data protection implications of collecting that information? So first off, we would definitely recommend that you um, that you liaise with your data protection officer. I know that particularly Dorset and Hampshire and Isle of Wight, their DPOs or some of their DPOs have already sent out some guidance to practices around updating um, your documents and what you need to do. That may include undertaking a data protection impact assessment. Um, the, the guidance document, document recommends that you have a policy of recording information that you can share with staff and make available to them. Um, you will need to update and review your employee privacy notice and the DPOs have, I think, sent some information out about that. Just reminding you of the general principles around data protection, you should only record the information that you need, it shouldn't be excessive. And you should ensure that only those staff that need to have access that, to that information have appropriate access. So I'm just going to finish off on two, two last slides, really, which is just to signpost you to the information. Um, at the end of one of the guidance documents, there is this quite useful flowchart. So that's useful just to draw your attention to, and it does just summarise things quite nicely for you. Obviously, there are lots of scenarios that won't fit into the flowchart, but hopefully this is quite useful for those that fit, fit it in the main. And then onto the next slide... We've just summarised the links on the NHSEI website to the um, to the web documents that we would, as, as I say, highly recommend that you read. There's the phase one um, guidance, the phase two and the FAQs. So they're all worth looking at um, and it's probably worth reading them once or twice just to cover every scenario. Um, the only other thing that I would add before we go into a more general discussion is that we're not the HR experts, so we are absolutely signposting you to definitely seek some specialist HR over this. Um, we think it's one of those scenarios that you probably do need to do that. Okay, thanks, Louise. Thank you, Lisa. Um, so we are expecting, obviously, quite a few questions in. Um, about this. So we've just got something coming already. Um, can you advise how we deal with our registered patients asking for exemption letters for their work if they cannot comply with new vaccination rules for employment? Also, if we have to do the letters, can we charge? But if, if we start off in terms of the general process, obviously people should go through 119 if they are exempt to receive a certificate. I can see Michelle nodding because I know she's really knowledgeable about this. And I think we have got a flow chart. So I think they should be following that process. Is that correct, Michelle? I think so. And I think in the FAQ document, it does reference that if you've got employees, they will need to go through the 111 process with their registered doctor um, and to follow that through and actually that is a contractual requirement for their registered practice uh, to comply with and to provide that information. I think the only question will be is if there's very few medical exemptions that will enable um, staff to not have these vaccines. I think you've mentioned Lisa about the pregnant, there's a temporary um, exemption for pregnant staff um, but I think uh, they're going to have to follow the 119 process which may not give them what they need. We've had a questions sent in um, in advance, so I shall just read out one of those. So what is the definition of frontline staff? So I think the guidance gives some ex examples. So it talks about obviously clinical staff, but it also mentions other, other members of the team. And it does refer to, to non-clinical administrative teams as well. Also talks about cleaners, um, porters, obviously within hospital trusts. Um, so I don't think they give an exhaustive list, 
but they talk about any staff that could have face-to-face -face contact um, and I think we have to go back to that word incidental contact that they refer to um, so I, unfortunately I think it's probably down to the individual practice to identify which staff fall into the relevant category. And the question comes in would pharmacists who are not patient facing be expected to be vaccinated? So if we're talking about community pharmacy, uh, community pharmacy is not regulated by the CQC. So, so they're looking at them as, as separate organisations. They are not covered by the regulations. Their regulator is the General Pharmaceutical Council. Um, they have urged community pharmacists to, to be vaccinated, but they don't fall within the regulations. I think if you have, and I'm going to look to the medics to add in detail but I think if you have anybody like that coming into the building you need to assess what level of contact they might be having do a risk assessment and put in place any mitigations as appropriate Gareth yeah I think that's 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 the key message really is that um, it, it, the guidance is clear that it's anybody who could have face-to-face -face contact with patients, be that as part of their primary role or incidental. So if you have anybody in your building working in that capacity who isn't vaccinated, you would then have to go through a, a, a large, a big risk assessment to ensure that they didn't have face-to-face -face contact. And CQC, when they come to inspect, will be looking at that. So because this is a legal requirement. And so I think my, my feeling, having read the documents and there's, there's, there's still more guidance to come out from the BMA, is that we have to change our mindsets a bit about this, that this is a legal requirement and, and we can't be too kind, that we have to actually choosing a, or not to have a vaccination is, a, is an individual choice, which you can try to influence and respect, but of that choice, there must be consequences and you can't protect people from the consequences of their choice. And it is their choice, not your choice. And so it feels very different. It feels uncomfortable and it, make, it certainly makes us feel nervous. And I'm sure it makes the practices feel nervous as well. But actually, that's the reality of it, that it is, it is their choice and they have to have the consequences of that choice explained to them. And practices must act within the law and the law has been changed. So it's a change in mindset and it's difficult. Um, but we, I think my fear is that because practices are all lovely and we're all trying to do the best for our staff and we'll have loyalties with members of staff, etc., that we will try to fudge it somehow and practices will end up in trouble with the regulator and breach the law. And that's, a, that's not a place I would want anybody to go to. So I think you, you'd have to have very, very good risk assessments and very, very good mitigations in place before you would have anyone working in a, in a general practice setting that isn't vaccinated. Can I ask, can I push you a bit on the redeployment bit, Gareth? We had a question come in and say, would we be able to redeploy admin to work from home or would the incidental contact when they need to bring laptop in for updates mean this isn't an option? Well, yeah, I think you could. Um, but again, it comes down to the level of, of the risk assessment. So if you had somebody who could work from home, then obviously that's a, that's a, um, 
a great engineering control to use the language so it's putting people in a different place where they're not exposed to the hazard so that's great but then when they come into the building you can then put other control measures in place to make sure they don't have face-to-face contact with patients such as they could come in before the surgery was open or they come in when the surgery is not open to patients and then they would not have face-to-face contact but you'd have to you'd have to do the risk assessments on that Um, You could arrange other things, such as if they needed to just come in and bring a laptop in, you could meet them in the car park, for example. You can put in other mitigations, but you would have to document that and you'd have to have that as part of your risk assessment. So you can do it, but you have to be very careful in how you do it. And treat everybody the same, I guess. And, And that's really key. That's really key that, you know, this is I can see the lawyers sharpening their pencils on this as we speak. Um, And actually, of course, the Equality Act and all the consequences of the Equality Act will play into this, where some people might claim that they are they should not be vaccinated without actually medical grounds for that. Um, And then you're into very uh, difficult waters then. Um, And I would advise practices to try to do everything they can to be to to evolve, avoid being in that situation. Thanks, Gareth. Do you think it will eventually apply to boosters? We currently have 100% compliance for dose one and two, but 95% for boosters. Um, Yes, yes. The simple answer to that is yes. The the data that came out just before Christmas, which led to the booster campaign, showed that the AZ vaccine um, diminished to virtually no effect on on the variants after over 20 weeks and the and the Pfizer also diminished. So if we are heading to a world of regular boosters, and we may be, we may not, we still don't know some of the science behind that, then I think it's, it has to apply to boosters at some point. I think the primary legislation is just around two, two doses because obviously the impact of introducing it with boosters when we have booster coverage of 75%, I was just checking the Wiltshire figures, is 75% in Wiltshire, 90% are fully vaccinated now. The Obviously the impact if you try to bring this in when you have only 75% of your population vaccinated is so much greater. So I'm sure that's why it's based on two vaccines, but it would make no logical sense for it not to include the boosters at some point. Thanks, Gareth. So... Do we have to ask for vaccination status of people who may come into the GP building for the purpose of a meeting, for example, because they may pass patients in shared spaces? Uh, well, do you want to do that one? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, uh, essentially, yes. Um, but that, again, very similar to the previous answer, each one of these needs to be risk assessed. So it's about trying to manage risk and minimise or mitigate that risk for the individual. So if you've got someone who's coming in to uh, fix your sliding doors, for example, in your surgery, they're going to be close to patients who may walk in and out. Therefore, you need to try and manage that risk, either by asking them to show you their vaccination status, or if you're unable to do that, ensure that that repair occurs at a time at which they do not have uh, that incidental Uh, passing of patients and that's just an example of many other different ways you may as an organization therefore consider making sure that every single one of your guests offers you evidence of vaccination which is a bit more like the care homes or residential homes but i think the key phrase here is is about um a risk analysis you need to look at each one individual case when they come and have a system in place within your practice to and be able to show that you uh, show CQC as a regulatory body that you're able to risk manage that safely. Just another question. Oh, sorry, did one of you want to come in? 
Sorry, I was just going to, I've just been on a practice managers meeting and there's a number of these questions coming up and we wondered and I thought it might be useful to maybe ask CQC some of these questions about what they might be looking for. So I was going to go, I'm going to do that um, and maybe we can share some of the responses we receive from CQC. That's really helpful. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Just about the incidental contact. um, Jenny Doc says, I've read that incidental contact includes using the same entrance corridors, toilets as patients. I think most practices would be hard pressure to demonstrate this never happens if they share the building. For example, consider if there's a fire, where do people assemble? It's unlikely that patients and staff can be completely separate. Yeah, I agree with that, Jenny. I think that's right. And I think that's the that's the real problem with with managing this and doing the risk assessments is that you'd I think practically in most of our surgeries it would be very difficult to ensure that um they but that people can come in and work and have no incidental contact with patients and the next comment is um, what are the member of self plays tennis so I think we'll leave that one so Novak and the shenanigans in Melbourne is something else isn't it okay so does anybody know what the 119 team ask about the exemption certificate are we getting th- some through we are getting some through that clearly should not get through that process so um yeah exemption certificates where are we going with so that? so what we have got a flow chart around those and on that it does talk about the eligibility criteria i suspect this may have been updated actually and will be updated um but the four areas that they look for are um work or volunteer in a cqc regulated care home from the 11th of november 21 be exempt from self-isolating. So this is clearly out of date um, for 10 days if they are close contact of a confirmed COVID-19 case. Be exempt from self-isolation and completing a test on day eight if they've travelled from a non-red list country. Enter a venue in England that requires NHS COVID pass as a condition of entry. So we probably just need to relook at that. Those, I believe, are the four areas. This is probably going to expand given the um, what we're talking about. So I suspect that um, NHS staff will go on to that list. But uh, let's have a look at that and update it for everybody. That would be helpful. Thank you. Um, so Richard finished in a comment. Is there a risk we start to enact HR procedures with people before this is given royal assent? I think this is about the timelines. And we we talked about this within the office, didn't we, Lisa? I think you talked about the timelines in your presentation. That's right. So there are some very clear timelines around when when notice can be given. Um, it can't be given, I can't remember off the top of my head now, without looking at the slides, before a specific date. Um, and, and the the employment cannot be terminated before the 31st of March. Um, and one of the things is... February. One of the things that um, I saw in, in something recently, they were talking about the process and people might want to get you on the process. So it's really important that the process is handled with HR guidelines, isn't it? Because it is the process sometimes that trips us up. Gav, yeah, and it's important to remember that the first job and the tasks now is to identify the individual staff members and have supportive conversations and that's the phase we're in now we're not at the at the we haven't gone past the february date yet so there still is time to have supportive conversations and and make people aware of the choices that they have and and the potential consequences of those choices so um, i would be very surprised if royal assent was not granted to this bill um, and it has been passed by Parliament now. So Richard's right to raise it, but I think it's not really a significant risk. And, and of course, if it didn't get royal assent and it was pulled, then then I'm sure there is some HR language that can be wrapped around withdrawing um, the conversation or the, or the offer. But um, 
I don't see that as a big issue at the moment. Okay, thank you. Um, is it okay for a non-vaccinated member of staff to come into brief contact with a vaccinated member of staff who then moves into a contact with a patient, possibly carrying the virus to a vulnerable patient? So this is the mixing of non-vaccinated and vaccinated staff within the same building. And it, what sort of threat is that if, the, if then they are having to con have contact then with patients? The guidance is that it, it's it's face to face contact with patients. So I don't think you can possibly engineer that out of of the of the equation. But it is face to face with patients at the moment. Okay. Um, what if you hire out rooms within your practice? Whose responsibility is that? Is it the landlord, who is the practice manager, Marie, or is it the tenant? It's the contract holder. It's the person who holds a contract for providing regulated activities with CQC. Okay. Um, so I think that's, that's, I understand the question, but actually it's the person who holds the GMS or PMS contract that is regulated uh, the, is the person who's responsible. Okay, so that's going to be Marie then? Yeah. Um, sorry, Marie, that doesn't sound like a good Um <laughs> As Debbie said it's so difficult as because I think this was this is just again talk about shared, shared space and possibly laptops in car parks and things it's so difficult as you can pass in the car park but not in the building it's going to be so hard to police this and I think that's what you were saying Gareth isn't it um, yeah exactly that what happens if a member of staff refuses to disclose to disclose the information I think Lisa you've done a bit of work on that haven't you I, I would guess that's something to go back and get firstly specialist HR advice but I suspect that if they don't disclose the information then you're moving potentially towards if they're not compliant then then potentially you could be looking at the dismissal um, situation but I think you need to get HR advice on that I think within the guidance it does talk about um, where you can access some of that information um, so there, there may be other routes where you can access it so perhaps that's something we need to look into. OK, thank you. Um, just a comment. Presumably, that there, presumably there will be patients unvaccinated. Do we exclude them from the waiting room? I'm seeing shaking heads. No. What's the, Will, what's the official, the official answer to that? Uh, official answer is no, uh, you don't exclude them from the waiting room. Um, you could choose to manage your waiting room in a specific way, so that's a very individual decision, but you, you're not changing the way you, you are managing patients, essentially. Um, just been a comment popped up about links. We'll put all the links um, in in the Q and A boxes, and also in the um, when we publish on the website, we'll put all the links and also the the PowerPoint presentation where there are other links. We'll put all the information we can. I know you have thousands of places to look for information, but we'll try and condense it and make it really helpful for you. Can we get a template risk assessment for staff and risk analysis for visitors? I'm sure there are lots of those out there at the moment. Which is the best, and is the one that we would recommend? Anybody but volunteering that, that answer? Lisa? I think there are a few templates um, floating around that we've seen. I guess we probably just need to take that back as a team and have a look at that and see if we feel comfortable sending it out. Because I'd say we're not HR advisors. We just need to be sure that that's robust, I think. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and will it be our responsibility to ensure drivers who collect the samples each day are fully vaccinated? 
Yes, unfortunately, yes. it will be. It's part of people walking through your building. It's exactly the same as I mentioned about someone who might be fixing your door or fixing the plumbing. Um, risk, uh, risk analyze that particular one, but they're coming in and out every day, and therefore it's up to you to manage that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Where do we stand if we have other tenants in the building? We rent half the building to a local authority to use as office space. I guess it comes back to the GMS contract and the and Gareth, you're talking about the contracts and who's holding that as far as you can see goes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's the same answer. If they if they have face to face contact with patients, then you need to you need to get the you have some understanding of their vaccination status. And then if you have unvaccinated people working in the building employed by someone else, I think you then would have to have a conversation with the employers of those individuals. Um, Do we know how many staff might be dismissed on the 1st of April and what effect this has on providing our services? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, it's being the data is being collected now, so um, I'm aware that this this has been happening in Dorset. Um, it's about to, to happen in BSW, um, and I'm sure Hampshire System is doing the same. Um, an initial figure that I've heard for Dorset was about a hundred people, but we're not sure about the mix of clinicians, non-clinicians, etc. Within that, um, so we don't think it's huge numbers, but it might. It, it there are people out there who are unvaccinated. So with that data collection is happening now. And one of the issues, I guess, is it's all very well having one whole number, but there will be pockets where possibly that this service is decimated um, because there are a large number of people in that in particular area. So, but we've yet to see, haven't we? Yeah. Okay. What about PPG meetings? Will, I see you smiling. You can I'm, smiling. I'm smiling because that's a really good question. Um, and again, I think uh, PPG meetings, gosh, have them remotely. There you go. That might get over the problem. Um, I'm being flippant. I, I have to say, I think I'd have to think about that one, PPG meetings, and come back to you with an answer to that because it's slightly more convoluted. Mm. Uh, but those people entering the building are potentially going to come into contact with patients unless you're doing it at a specific time. So it's about finding a way either around that problem, so you're engineering a lack of contact, or um, uh, you actually find a way of making sure they're either vaccinated uh, and you are assessing them as they walk through. So again, it's all about an individual risk assessment of that particular process. Mm. Okay. Um, what about the postman? <laughs> Same risk, risk assess, unfortunately. It depends how close you get to the building and if you've got a good post box. Do we need to retain actual evidence of vaccination status for when CQC come in? Is it important to record that? Do you, is it best to record that on, patient, on a staff record somewhere? What would you recommend? Um, I suspect it may be... Um, reasonable to, to retain it for a period and I think that probably brings it back to your your employee privacy notice and your retention records and so being open about how long you you do that and you don't keep it for as long as only keep it for as long as you need to keep it but I think that's probably also a question for your DPO um, so I would run it past them as well um, uh, sorry the other thing I was going to say before it slipped out of my mind is that um, I think there are lots of webinars running at the moment. Um, Capsticks, we believe, are running. Well, I know they are running a, a webinar for primary care tomorrow, which is about twelve o'clock, I think. But also, I think NHSE and I is looking to to run a specific webinar for primary care as well, which we haven't seen the date or time yet. But as soon as we do, we can put that out. Lovely, and we will obviously keep everybody up to date 
as as we can. I, I was the BMA guidance coming through will be particularly helpful. Um, and yes, we'll just see how these got. Um, just a couple more coming in. There are clearly many contractors who visit many GP sites. For example, refuse collectors, HCC. Um, it would make sense for someone centrally to ask. So, Jenny, I think that's the sort of thing we've been talking about. So we'll talk to CQC, we'll talk to some of these bigger organisations to get, because you're right, the answer locally is going to be the same answer nationally and regionally. So if, if we can do some work on your behalf on um, in that front, we certainly will do that. Um, something just come into the chat. How are we supposed to manage this on a day-to-day -day basis? We've got so many people coming for deliveries. Do we have to risk assess every Amazon driver? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that is something that we, we should take back to CQC, actually, and say, how would they expect us to assess exactly that question, a delivery driver walking into the front door? And how, how can a practice manage that risk? And um, because, it, you know, we're meant to work with our doors open. And um, so patients can, can walk in and seek help. Um, and that we aren't going to close our doors in order that we can check someone's NHS app on every occasion. So how does CQC propose practices manage that? And I think that's a good question, actually. Yeah. Um, and just a comment that's come in. Um, CQC inspectors, when they're coming to the building, do, do we have the right to ask them? Should we expect them to be fully vaccinated? Yes. Yeah, we could raise with them. We could ask yeah. that question, couldn't we? Yes. I think it's a, it's a good question, isn't it? So I think I suppose as we've come to the end of the questions now, or we're coming more in, it's especially difficult as the government have just removed the need to show vaccination passports. Um, yeah, it, it's not easy, Sally. Um, yeah, it isn't easy. I can't catch that in anything nice, I don't think. Um, what, what we can do is we've taken back a few actions. So to go to the sort of the bigger organisations, to CQC, looking at some of the that, that sort of thing, we can certainly ask those questions. Um, it must be feeling almost, I'm sure practice managers are very professional and they're not panicking, but it must be feeling slightly overwhelming at the moment. Um, I would just say over the next week, what should you be doing first? What's the best thing to do? I think the best thing to do now is to, is to do your own due diligence on identifying people. That's really important. And try to have supportive conversations as to why people have chosen not to have a vaccine and whether or not there's anything you can do about that. And then also then whether or not um, they understand the consequences mm. of not being vaccinated. Because a lot of people will be uh, hesitant rather than refusing. And when those consequences are, uh, are made clear, that might influence the decision. And of course, you've got to do that in a, you know, a kind and supportive way, not a bullying way. But equally, you do need to be clear about the consequences. And that's really important that I think a lot of people will think, oh, well, it won't apply to me. Well, unfortunately, this, this is the law, it will apply. Mm. And if practices don't follow the law, then they are, are will be in trouble with the regulator, which can ultimately um, lead to a termination of contract. And I, I hope to God we never end up in that situation, but that's, that's a reality which we all have to face up to. And just a, a, a comment that's popped in, should it be a formal meeting? If you're having a conversation with a member of staff, does that need to be recorded? Is it how formal do you need HR there? What, what, what would you suggest? How, how is it in a corridor conversation? Is it a group conversation? I, don't, I certainly don't think it's a corridor conversation, but I do think initially I would say it should be an informal supportive meeting. And, and ideally you should offer a clinician to have a clinical conversation with them if they if they want that or if they feel that should be or if they feel that would be of use. 
um, to help them in their decision making. So I think initially I would be very, very gentle, but of course it might come to a point where you will have to have to have a more formal process. And I guess it could be a, a maybe within the PCN, a clinician from a different practice, if that helps, so this neighbouring practice sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think use whatever resources you can, essentially, to try to, to give people the best opportunity to make the decision. Yeah. Um, Will? Um, I just wanted to, to go over really the, the timeline a little bit because that can be helpful. And, and the initial bit, the where we are now, is, is to engage with your staff, make sure that all of the staff are aware of this because there may be some people who've buried their head in the sand, so that the, the here and the now is engage with the staff. This is kind of the review period where you're trying to find out, fact find as an organisation, what your staff, uh, which members of staff may or may not be vaccinated. And to those that aren't, you can have a loose conversation about explaining the implications. So you're letting them know, maybe as part of the, the communication with staff about this, these are the implications of uh, choosing to be unvaccinated. That goes on until around the 4th of February. On the 4th of February, um, you should have up-to-date information for, for all of your staff, which staff are unvaccinated. And it's at that point that you just have to start having more formal discussions. And those should be formal um, discussions regarding redeployment or dismissal. Um, and that dismissal would be on the grounds of a contravention of statutory restriction. But this is all written really well in the documentation. Um, it, it's one of the clearest bits of documentation I've read from NHS England for quite some time. It, it reads quite well. It, it's got clarity of what we should be doing organisationally. There's quite a lot of stuff in there that, that to me as a GP, I'm not very good at. It's a huge amount of HR in there, but I suspect as practice managers, you're much better at it than we are. And so that'll make uh, have much more meaning to you guys than it would to me as a GP. Um, and so it is the process by which you manage their dismissal. And I think part of it is talking about being consistent. You have to have a really consistent approach throughout all of this and that you follow the standard process of dismissal for anybody that chooses not to be vaccinated and doesn't have a valid medical exemption certificate. Thanks, Louise. That's really helpful, Will. And I think that it isn't just the practice manager as an individual who's holding all this, is it? It is the partnership. Um, and as, as we said, the threat to the partnership is huge if CQC come in and find things haven't been as, as they would wish them to be. So it don't feel isolated in all these decisions because it's not easy and we're not underestimating in any sense. Um, exemption certificates, still a little bit of concern about this. Um, if a patient comes to the desk asking for us to complete an exemption, do we have to do it? I'm happy to pick this one up. I think so there's two ways that they can ask for this. So if it is a, actually an exemption certificate and it's the, there's an application form that's been given via 119, then yes, you do. There's a contractual requirement there for you to undertake it. And if you do it through the process, you have to do it through the summary care record. Um, and that then will automatically instigate a letter to the patient, depending on the out uh, with whatever the outcome. I think it can take up to three weeks and then the practice will automatically be paid. I think it's £44 per, per report um, uh, completed. If it's a patient just asking for an exemption that hasn't come through that process, there isn't a contractual requirement to do that. And you need to decide as a practice how you're going to manage those requests and whether you wish you're going to wish to provide that. We do have a flowchart that takes talks through those two processes because they're quite different, but could actually blur depending on outcomes. Um, but I am going to just look at it in light of the criteria because I think that possibly has been updated. So we will just revisit that and update. 
that would be helpful. It seems to be that's sort of a, quite a difficult issue at the moment, sort of um, at the forefront of people's minds. So staff are being very challenged currently by those who do not want to be vaccinated. So how do we secure a safe environment? Um, so if anybody unvaccinated or not a medical exemption, do we send them a risk assessment before entering the medical centre? I think, I think, Michelle, you answered something recently on people asking for lateral flows, didn't you, and going into medical centres. So how do you keep a safe environment for the receptionists? And also, what about patients coming in who are not vaccinated, who are being difficult with patients? Yeah, I, think, I think we're slightly in danger of conflating two issues with this question, really, that this, this current guidance is around people who are employed to deliver healthcare. And the reason for vaccination is, is to prevent... One, try to prevent transmission to unvaccinated patients, but also to protect the individuals and for business continuity uh, to prevent infection in staff members. So there's that issue. And as Will said, I we can never restrict access to healthcare on the basis of being vac vaccinated or not vaccinated. We would never do that. And current guidance is that you do not have to do lateral flow tests before you enter a medical building. That's not in the in the infection and control documents. So we will always be in a situation where somebody can enter the building without being vaccinated, but they shouldn't be your members of staff. And that's the that's the sort of bottom line message, really. That's really clear. Thank you, Gareth. Um, I think that's probably we've probably exhausted that. There will be more and more questions, I'm sure, as people work through all this information, look through more of the detail. Um, we are not HR specialists, as we have stressed before, but we're happy to point you in the direction of the guidance. So, well, actually, this is what you need to do because this is what the guidance says. I'm very happy to talk to you about that sort of thing. Um, so. I've just seen a question come in. Delivery drivers, for example, they're not employed by us, so this would not, so this would not apply. Delivery drivers, I think we've already talked about delivery drivers and postmen. And I think we're going to raise this with CQC on the, and to understand their expectations and how you manage all the contacts and all the people coming into your your site. So I think let's raise that with CQC and see what response we and we'll share that with practices. And this is why these sort of live webinars are really helpful because as we chat through, other things come up and you can also see with which ones of your colleagues are also thinking of other things that obviously apply to you. So we will certainly share all of that. We'll make it clear on the website. We will record this and you can listen to it afterwards. Um, but I think the main thing is just to think about the timeline, um, be consistent, get, get HR advice. And I think that Lisa sort of links for the, for the guidance, read the guidance. Um, those are sort of things at the moment. And we will do this, um, these webinars, we're going to do another one in a couple of weeks' time. But obviously something else happens in the meantime and we feel we need to speak to you before or you'd like to contact us for any way anyway um do please do that do email us um, and we'll put some information out there which hopefully will be helpful for you so thank you very much for joining us again it's been very nice that you've been with us and hopefully we will um yeah we'll see you again in a couple of weeks thanks very much bye-bye wessex lmc's supporting you and your practice